so have visitors with us on occasion, and, and I hope that uh, you've had a wonderful day. We've had a wonderful day. We had a wonderful meal this afternoon. Again, thank you to all the ladies and some of the men that also had helped in uh, preparing that meal. It was, a, it was a good one. We appreciate it very much. We're going to be looking at Luke chapter 1 as we think about those things that are most surely believed. Let me read for you again what Luke had recorded there in Luke chapter 1. Notice with me. For as much as many have taken in hand to set forth in order a declaration of those things which are most surely believed among us, even as they delivered them unto us, which from the beginning were eyewitnesses and ministers of the word. There are things that we believe. There are no uncertainties, no hesitations, no questions in our minds. These are the rock-solid faiths, truths, I guess you would say, that every one of us believe. We believe these truths because God, through His Word, has told us about them. And really, in light of all of this, it stands the reason that we must put our trust in what we call the inspiration of the scripture, that is the holy book, that is God's word, the Bible. It is not a product of mankind, but Peter said that holy men of God spake as they were moved by the Holy Spirit in 2 Peter 1 and verse 21. There are things about Jesus that are recorded for us in the scriptures. Now, I understand that, historically speaking, that we can look outside of the Scripture and we can learn a lot about this man called Jesus. But what we find recorded in this particular book that we call the Bible, these are true. They are, they, they are that in which we believe with all of our hearts, with all of our soul, and with all of our mind. When Paul wrote to Timothy in 2 Timothy 1.12, he would say, for I know whom I have believed and am persuaded. Here's my question for you tonight. Are there things about Jesus that you believe that are not, that are non-negotiable? Do you believe with them with all of your heart? You know, Peter on another occasion said, but sanctify the Lord God in your hearts and be ready always to give an answer or, or maybe a defense of your faith to every man that asks you the reason of the hope that is within you with meekness and fear. Those things that you believe, can you do that? Are you able to give an answer or a defense? If someone were to ask you, what do you believe about Jesus? Let me just say, whether it's a friend or a co-worker or a family member or even uh, somebody that you just happen to stop by and see and they put you on that spot. What would you say if they asked you that question, what do you believe about Jesus? Or what is it that makes Jesus so special to you? You talk a lot about him. So what do you believe about Jesus? Well, let me share with you some things that I believe about Jesus, things that are in my mind that are most assuredly believed. First off, I believe in the virgin birth. And I, 
I believe that you believe that as well. But you know, the Bible talks a lot about the redemptive plan of, of Almighty God. And Jim even mentioned that in his, his prayer. But the fact that Jesus came into this world, and we understand that Jesus is not a created being. That is that he has always existed before he took on himself human flesh. But in order to redeem the world, in order to show the world that God needed his son, the second member of the Godhead, to come to earth in order for him to be able to accomplish it, he had to have a body. I believe we understand that. It would require a human body. And so the Bible tells us in the Old Testament about God's plans to bring the Messiah, the Christ, the Anointed One, into this world. Now back in Genesis chapter 3, we read about man transgressing the law of God in the Garden of Eden. But when the first couple had sinned in that garden, death entered into the world. First, there was spiritual death, which is separation from Almighty God. And that's the reason why in Genesis 3.15 that God set forth the promise to intervene on behalf of fallen humanity. But nonetheless, man died spiritually, but then also he died physically. Now separated from the tree of life, from the, from the very things that would have kept him continuing to live in this world, now is separated physically from that as well and thus eventually would die. And of course, what we know about Hebrews 9, 27, that it is appointed unto man once to die, then cometh the judgment. So we're all going to die one day. But Paul in Romans 5 and verse 12 tells us that by one man sin entered into the world and death by sin. And so God began unveiling his redemptive plan, and you can trace that seed line down to the coming of Jesus. Now, in order for Jesus to come into this world, God needed a mother, and so he chose a woman by the name of Mary. Some 700 to 750 years before Jesus ever came to earth, Isaiah the statesman, a prophet foretold of that virgin birth, in Isaiah 7 and verse 14, he said, Therefore the Lord himself shall give you a sign. Behold, a virgin shall conceive and bear a son and shall call his name Emmanuel. In Isaiah 9 and verse 6, we, uh, he would ascribe to the Christ, the Messiah, and his name shall be called Wonderful, Counselor, Prince of Peace, the Mighty God, the Everlasting Father. Jesus would come from the lineage of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Now, Jacob, uh, Jacob, of course, would have 12 sons, and out of those 12 sons would emerge 12 tribes. Jesus would descend through the tribe of Judah, and then later to the family of David. And he would and does occupy a throne today. It is a spiritual throne. And he sits upon the throne of David. Now you can read of that in Acts chapter 2, 29 and 30. But Matthew, when he began his account narrating the very life of Jesus, we find in chapter 1 that he begins by giving us the seed line of the royal king being Jesus. And he would tell us that which is conceived in Mary is of the Holy Spirit. But notice what he says in verse 21. 
And she shall bring forth a son, and thou shalt call his name Jesus, for he shall save his people from their sins. That's interesting, isn't it? But if you look at Matthew 1 and verse 22, Matthew said, Now all this was done, that it might be fulfilled, which was spoken of the Lord by the prophet, saying, he's quoting Isaiah 7, 14, Behold, a virgin shall be with child, and shall bring forth a son, that thou shalt call his name Emmanuel, which being interpreted, God with us. Jesus was no ordinary human being, was he? Not in by any means. He was the son of God, God, God incarnate. And we would also know in John 1, 1 through 3, that in where John said, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God, and the same was in the beginning with God. All things were made by Him, and without Him was not anything made that was made. But in verse 14 of John 1, we read, And the Word was made flesh and dwelt among us. And we beheld His glory as the glory of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. So in order for Jesus to fulfill the will of Almighty God, a body had to be prepared for Him. And that's what the Hebrew writer said in Hebrews 10 and verse 5. He said, Sacrifice and offering they wouldest not, but a body hast thou prepared me. A quotation from the Old Testament foretelling of the body that he should be prepared, that should be prepared for Jesus in the womb of Mary. And so when people might ask you, do you believe in the virgin birth? Well, my answer is yes, absolutely. I believe that God sent his only begotten son into the world and that Jesus had a human father. I mean, a, yeah, a human father and a human mother and a divine father. I'm going to get that right. Human mother and a divine father. That divine father, of course, being God, the father, the first member of the Godhead. But then there's a second thing that we see in our study, and that is when we talk about Jesus and those things that we most surely believed, I suggest to you that I believe in the virtuous life of Jesus. I said a moment ago that Jesus was no ordinary man. He wasn't a created being like you and I. But one of the things that separates Jesus from the human family is summed up in the fact that he never sinned. I, I can't imagine someone living here on planet earth and not succumbing to temptation. And yet Jesus was, as the Hebrew writer said, but was in all points tempted like as we are, but yet without sin. Hebrews 4.15. His sterling character. When you begin to look at Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, and there are many, many critics of Jesus. Some were very religious people at that time. But they did everything within their power to destroy him, to discredit him, to, to smear his good name. And yet the beauty of Jesus is that they couldn't do it. They couldn't do it at all. In Luke chapter 4, as well as we find in Matthew 4, the account is told of Jesus being led by the Spirit into the wilderness. And there he fasted for 40 days and 40 nights. I couldn't even imagine that. 40 days and 40 nights. But the Bible says in Matthew 4, 3, And when the tempter came to him, he came tempting him. 
There, there are three very specific temptations that we find posed to Jesus, beginning with the very fact, if thou be the Son of God, well, command these stones to be made bread. He knew that Jesus had fasted for 40 days and 40 nights. Granted, he's going to be hungry. If thou be the Son of God, command these stones to be made into bread, and thus you can f f satisfy that hunger that you have after being there for 40 days and 40 nights fasting. The very idea of the devil who will begin by making such a statement, if thou be the Son of God. Well, Jesus was the Son of God. He, was, he knew that. Satan knows that. Jesus said, it is written. Isn't it wonderful that we can use that as an example in our studies with other people that, <clears throat> that we can look at the Word of God and we can say, it is written. That's how we can give an answer to every man, the reason of the hope that is within us. But you need to understand here that the source of his strength over temptation was the Scripture. That's, that's what we have as well. <clears throat> the source of his strength over temptation was scripture. So Jesus responded three times to the devil by saying, it is written, it is written, it is written. You need to understand that. Even though Jesus was tempted here on this earth and temptation itself is not a sin, it's when we yield to that temptation that we sin because Jesus was tempted here on this earth. And though we have three very specific temptations spoken of by Matthew as well as Luke, where the devil tempted him in the wilderness. Now, he tempted him on other occasions as well. And uh, how do I know that? Well, in Luke 4 and verse 13, the Bible tells us that when Jesus succeeded in overcoming the temptations posed him by the devil. But notice he says, and when the devil had ended all the temptation, he departed from him for a season. In other words, he's coming back. I'm not done with you, thou son of God. I'm coming back. And so the devil would have liked nothing more but to have thwarted the redemptive plan of Almighty God to get Jesus to sell out or bail out of his redemptive work. And yet Jesus would say on more than one occasion that he came to fulfill the will of his Father, which is in heaven. In John 17, in verse 4, in the shadow of the cross, Jesus said, I have glorified thee on the earth. I have finished the work which thou gavest me to do. So what about the sinless Son of God? Sinless in word, sinless in deed. A lot of great things have been said about Jesus, and there have been there have been, as I said a moment ago, many, many people that have tried time and time again to discredit him or to destroy him in some way. Some have done everything within their power to destroy his influence. And yet he sh his shining and sterling character still stands out for us and it still lives on. Many, many people have been influenced by him. But you see, Jesus was the sinless son of God. He was the spotless Lamb of God. In the Old Testament, when God instituted the Passover, back in Exodus 12, the Israelites' uh, people were to take a lamb without spot and, and without blemish. Not just any lamb, but the best lamb. Well, Jesus, according to Paul, is our Passover lamb. 
And he was, as we would say, the best of the best, right? He was God's finest. And so God spared no expense in saving us from sin. Peter would say in 1 Peter 2 and verse 21, For even hereunto were you called, because Christ also suffered for us, leaving us an example that ye should follow his steps, who did no sin, neither was guile found in his mouth. In 1 Peter 1 and verse 18, Peter would also tell us that we have been redeemed, not by corruptible things, such as silver and gold, but by the precious blood of Jesus Christ, as a lamb without spot and without blemish. Listen to what Paul said in 2 Corinthians 5 and verse 21. He said, For he hath been made him to be sin for us, who knew no sin, that we might be made the righteousness of God in him. Jesus was sinless from the start all the way to the finish. His virtuous life unparalleled. But then I also think about his vicarious death. You see, I believe in the vicarious death of Jesus. A death that he didn't deserve. But a death that he did for us. He took our place. Jesus came to earth to die for my sins. And not just my sin. But for the sins of the human family. Over and over again, the Bible talks about the willingness of Jesus to go to the cross for us. But did you know that Jesus suffered in his body for you? That's right. He suffered in his body, that human body, for you and for me. Again, we go back to 1 Peter 2 and verse 24, where Peter said that Christ, his own self, bare our sins in his own body on the tree, that we, being dead to sins, should live unto righteousness. The idea is, is that Jesus was nailed to the cross for my sins. He suffered immensely in that human body designed for him. Read sometime this week Matthew's account. And I would encourage you to read not just Matthew's account, but read all the four gospel accounts of the death of Jesus, where Jesus experienced excruciating pain for me, for you, for our sins. Matthew said, but he was scourged. You know, the scourging itself would have been enough to kill a man. In fact, many have died just during the scourging. But Jesus couldn't die that way. He couldn't die by a scourging. He had to die on the tree, according to Isaiah 53, that prophecy. Jesus was slapped. He was beaten, as we would say, unmercifully. But why? Because of our sins. I believe that. Our Bible says that the Bible says that Christ died for our sins in 1 Corinthians 15, 3. Personally speaking, he died for my sins and for your sins. And I believe that. But not only did Jesus suffer on the cross in his body, but the Bible says that he shed his blood for us. He shed that blood. I think about all the animal sacrifices that were offered beginning back during the days of the patriarchs. And then we transition over into the Mosaic dispensation. And again, animal sacrifice after animal sacrifice offered on behalf of the people. But Jesus, as the ultimate lamb, shed his blood. Now those sacrifices that we, I was just talking about, the Hebrew writer said that the blood of bulls and goats could not take away sins. So all those animal sacrifices 
didn't do much, did they? But Jesus, the ultimate Lamb of God, shed his blood so that we might enjoy forgiveness or redemption in the absolute sense. Now, all of the sacrifices that were offered under the old covenant and, uh, and in the patriarchal period, all of those blood sacrifices anticipated the coming of Jesus to be that ultimate lamb. And when Jesus came, he shed his blood and we were said to be redeemed. We we're said to enjoy the blessings of redemption. But listen to what Paul said in Ephesians 1, 7. He said, it's in Jesus in whom we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of sins according to the riches of his grace. John would write in Revelation 1 and verse 5 that unto him, that is Jesus, that loved us and washed us from our sins in his own blood. So the blood of Jesus is what washes away, cleanses every sin in my life and in your life. And I believe that. Do you remember when Jesus observed the Passover with his disciples? And on that occasion, he instituted what we call the Lord's Supper, that memorial feast that we partake upon the first day of the week as we are commanded. Paul said in 1 Corinthians 11 and verse 26, For as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you do show the Lord's death till I come. For every time that they eat that bread, that unleavened bread, you and I, for every time that we, that symbolizes his body, for every time that we eat that fruit of the vine that symbolizes his blood, we do show the Lord's death till he comes. Matthew 26, 26 through 29. The idea is that when we partake of that Lord's Supper, every first day of the week, we bring to our memory that body that was given on that cross for you and for me. A vicarious death. He took my place on that cross. That blood was shed for my sins, your sins. And where did Jesus shed his blood? On the cross in his death. John 19, 34. Jesus, while hanging upon that cross, had his side pierced by a Roman soldier. And we know that Jesus died upon that cross but how then do we appropriate his blood today? How can I enjoy the blessings of the, the benefits of the blessings of the blood of Jesus that washes away all my sins? Well, I've got to go where it was shed, don't I? I have to go to that cross. The only way that I can enjoy the benefits of the blessings of his blood is to be baptized into Christ dying to sin. Just like Jesus, when he died on that cross, he died for our sins. I'm dying for sin or because of sin. And then I'm buried in that watery grave just as Jesus was buried in that tomb. It was a borrowed tomb. It was a new tomb. But then to rise to walk in newness of life just as Jesus rose from that grave on that third day to live forever. I contact the blood at that particular time, the blood that was shed on Calvary for my sins and for your sins. Listen, if you will, to the words of Paul in Romans 8 and verse 32. 
He said, God spared not his own son, but delivered him up for us all. How shall he not with him also freely give us all things? When I think about what God through Christ has done for us as members of the human family, I stand in awe. We ought to stand in awe. And so I believe in the vicarious death of Jesus, but I also believe in the resurrection of Jesus, right? The beauty of Scripture is the beauty of the story of Christ. It's reflected in the fact that His ministry, His work, His service for God on behalf of the human family did not end in that tomb. Do you remember uh, what Jesus said in John 2 and verse 19? He said, at the onset of his ministry, he said, destroy this temple and in three days I will raise it up. Now, of course, his disciples had a misunderstanding of what he was talking about. They thought he was talking about the physical structure in Jerusalem, the temple. He was talking about the temple of his body. The temple of his body. Verses 20 and 21. And so there are some things that we ought to appreciate about the resurrection. When I say that I believe in the resurrection of Jesus Christ, I'm saying that I believe in one of the cardinal doctrines of the New Testament. Did you know that Christianity stands or falls on the basis of whether or not there was the resurrected Christ? That's right. Whether or not that was true. Paul said in 1 Corinthians 15, 14, and if Christ be not risen... Then is our preaching vain and our faith is also vain? In verse 17, he says, we're still in sin. So the bottom line is, is if the resurrection is not true, then we might as well quit, close up shop and go home because we're better off. But there was a resurrected Christ. Christ did rise from that grave and it is true Because the resurrection is that which authenticates Christianity as we know it. Let me encourage you this week to read even the, the book of Acts as well. Maybe just read the first four chapters of Acts and notice the apostles preaching on the resurrection of Jesus. Now, those in the first century, many thought that Jesus was a deceiver. They secured that tomb. They sealed that tomb so well. They put a guard in front of it. They made sure in an effort to quote unquote a keep a potential resurrection from ever happening. It didn't work, did it? Not at all. Up from the grave he arose as we sang this morning. Right? Jesus came forth from the grave. And the Bible tells us in Acts 1 that he showed himself alive after his passion by many infallible proofs, being seen of them 40 days and speaking of the things pertaining to the kingdom of God. There were some 500 eyewitnesses that saw Jesus. And then we talk about the apostles who were eyewitnesses of the resurrected Christ. Why why did I mention The book of Acts, because in Acts chapters 1 through 4, you have the ascension of Jesus and then the birth of the church. All because of the resurrected Christ. The infancy of the church, which led to the eventual growth of the church. But inherent in all that was the preaching of the resurrection of Jesus. That's what brought it about. In Acts chapter 2, when Peter stood before most of those people in Jerusalem on Pentecost Pentecost Day, he said there in verse 22, he says, Ye men of Israel, 
hear these words. Jesus of Nazareth, a man approved of God among you by miracles and wonders and signs, which God did by him in the midst of you, as ye yourselves also know, him being delivered by the determinate counsel and foreknowledge of God, ye have taken, ye have taken and by wicked hands have crucified and slain, whom God had raised up, having loosed the pains of death. Right out of the box. Peter and the apostles preached the very resurrected Christ. In Acts 3 and verse 15, a record of Peter's second sermon, Peter acknowledged the fact that God had raised Jesus from the dead. In Acts 4 and verse 2, the Bible says that they preached through Jesus the resurrection from the dead. Do you really think that the apostles would have been willing to suffer, bled, and died for a hoax? For something that never occurred, not a chance. Not a chance. These guys believed that Jesus died and rose again, and I believe it too. I've never seen that empty tomb. Many have been over there to Israel and have seen what they think was the tomb that Jesus was once laid in. But I've never seen that empty tomb. I wasn't there with Peter and John. I wasn't present when some of the women that followed Jesus heard that angel ask that question. Why do you seek the living among the dead? Right? But I believe it. And I believe it with all my heart. I believe that Jesus died and rose again. And so that authenticates the Christian religion. And furthermore, it is proof positive that Jesus is the Son of God. Because we can read about all of these other people that have been resurrected from the grave. Raised from the grave. Lazarus. But you know Lazarus lived for a little while and then he eventually died again. Eutychus was raised by Paul. Who died. Raised from the grave. Right? He eventually died again. Jairus' daughter. Right? Eventually died again. Many, many others. But Jesus rose from that grave to never die again he is who he claimed to be as the son of God in Romans 1 and verse 4 where the Bible says that Jesus was declared to be the son of God by power with power according to the spirit of holiness by the resurrection from the dead Paul said in Romans 4 and verse 25 that Jesus who was delivered for our offenses and was raised again for our justification the resurrection is vital for the Christian religion. Otherwise, we have no hope and our preaching's in vain. And yet we're still in our sins. That's something that I most surely believe. And I would hope and pray that you believe that as well. Let me tell you, I'm not sure how many open graves I've stood at the side of them. But I have stood at the side of so many open graves, stillborns, young people, Middle-aged people, older people. But death is a reality, isn't it? Death is a reality. But invariably, when I stand beside of an open grave, particularly when that person is a Christian, I often sometimes read 1 Thessalonians 4 or 1 Corinthians 15, reminding those loved ones that have been left behind that, yes, we are committing this body to the heart of the earth. But that same body that is being placed in that grave will one day come forth. 
Listen to what Jesus said. He said, marvel not at this, for the hour is coming. In the which that all that are in the grave shall hear his voice, and shall come forth, they that have done good unto the resurrection of life, and they that have done evil unto the resurrection of damnation. And so, yes, I have had a part in way too many funerals, but don't get me wrong. It's an honor to participate or to conduct a funeral service. But at the same time, it's hard. It's hard. Because you're saying goodbye to somebody that you love. And on the flip side of that, there's a sense of joy. Because we know that if that person that used to occupy that body was a faithful New Testament Christian, that one day there's going to be a grand reunion in heaven. And that's what we're looking for. That's what I believe. We will be reunited. And to me, that's something that I think about. I think about heaven and all the great blessings and the associations that will be there. The thing that really just thrills my soul is to think about being with people that I have known and loved down through the years. To be able to see them again. Some of those folks, I've said goodbye. I've said goodbye to, to them a long, long time ago. But through the eye of faith, I believe that I'll see them again. And so the resurrection. And then finally, I believe that Jesus will come again. These are just some of the things that are most surely believed. Assuredly. That same Jesus that walked the dusty streets of Palestine will one day come again. And by this time, he will never walk again on this earth. When I hear that second advent of Jesus, I will see him when he comes, but we'll meet him in the air. That's what Paul said in 1 Thessalonians 4 and verse 16 in reference to the coming of Jesus. He said, For the Lord himself shall descend from heaven with a shout, with the voice of the archangel, and with the trump of God. <clears throat> and the dead in Christ shall rise first, then we which are alive and remain shall be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. And so shall we ever be with the Lord. I've never heard the voice of an archangel. I've never heard the trumpet of God. But I believe that one day I will. And I also believe that one day when the Son of God comes with all his holy angels, I will see him. Because John said in Revelation 1 and verse 7, Behold, he cometh with the clouds, and every eye shall see him, and they also which pierced him, and all kindreds of the earth shall well because of him, to know that one day we will hear him and we will see him. Those are some things that I believe with all my heart, things that are most surely believed, and I hope you do too. I close tonight by asking you this question. Do you believe in Jesus? Do you believe that Jesus came to this earth to live and to die for you? That he died on that cross, shed his blood, buried in that tomb, but rose on that third day for you? Do you believe that? Well, John tells us in John 8, 24, that if we don't, we're going to die in our sins. I hope that that's what you believe. Because with that belief, that gives you faith in knowing that Jesus is the Son of God. Faith in believing that He did those things. And that faith 
will cause you to want to make a change in your life called repentance. Changing our lives from what we've been doing to start doing things right. Luke 13, 3 and 5 and Acts 17, 30. Acts 2, 38. Repent. But then also we need to make that good confession that Jesus is the Christ. Romans 10, 9 and 10. For with the heart man believes unto righteousness, with, with the mouth confession is made unto salvation. In order to obtain salvation. And then to go down into that watery grave. To contact the blood of Jesus that I said earlier ago. That's the only way I contact it. It's based upon my belief. My faith. In trusting that God sent his son to this earth to die for me. And when I contact that blood, I die to sin. I'm getting out of the sinning business. I'm buried in that watery grave and I rise to walk in the midst of life. A new person. A new creature. And you can do that even tonight. Jesus said, he that believeth and is baptized shall be saved. What else do you need to know? He said it all. But that's up to you. If that's something that you believe and you're willing to put that the Lord on in baptism for the remission of your sins, we'll be glad to assist you in that. Tomorrow may be too late, but tonight, today is the day of salvation. 2 Corinthians 6. Can we help you? Maybe you're a child of God. You wandered away. Come back. Be restored back to that first love. Jesus shed that blood, but that blood will continue to cleanse you even after becoming a child of God, being a part of the family of God. But if you wandered off back into sin, if you repent of that and pray that God will forgive you, that blood will continue to cleanse you. But it's up to you. As we said this morning, you have to make a decision. Whom will you serve? God Jesus or those idols? Strange God. Satan. We hope that you make that decision. We're going to sing a song of encouragement, number 31. Listen to the words of this song and see if it impedes you to make a difference in your life. Because tonight we stand and sing.